David prayed this, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Lord, it is true that the older we get, the faster life goes by. When we're young, life goes at a very, very slow clip and a slow pace. We get older, we pick up steam, we pick up momentum. It's amazing, Lord, when we look, take a step back, our life is a mere hand breath. We're here 60, 70, 80 years, and then that's it. And then we're buried. Um, It's not unusual for the memory of a man to be gone three generations after he's in the ground. We work, we strive, we build. Um, We try to leave things for the next generation or two. Sometimes it's used wisely. Oftentimes it is squandered. That gives perspective. And it is slightly depressing. I think what Moses said in Psalm 90, he said, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70 or due to strength, 80 years. Then he went on and said, but soon it is gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Lord, there's, there's really not anything we can do about anything other than how we live today. We all have regrets from the past. We all have things we can, we, we wish that we could go back and change, but we can't. But we, we thank you that we come to you the one who is our Savior, who died for our sins, past, present, and future. Our past sins you have removed from us as far as the east from the west. What we ask, Lord, is that as you have given us eternal life and our futures are secure in Christ, when we die, we know where we're going because all of our sins have been forgiven and all of our sins were put on Christ. But we would ask for wisdom today. We would ask, Lord, for the remainder of this evening, and then as we get up tomorrow, that you would give us wisdom to make the right choices, to walk in the right way, to walk in the right path. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life. Help us, Lord, to follow you on that narrow path. Direct us, guide us, Check us when we take a wrong step. And may we have the wisdom to listen and to respond and to follow you in paths of righteousness. That is the wise way to live. Courage us now as we look into your word. 
We want to live wisely. There's no other way to live wisely apart from the Bible. So may we put it in our hearts and minds and practice it as Ezra did. He made it his intent to study the law and to practice it. May we be like Ezra, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's some famous words that Jesus uttered in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. And he said this, he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, What's interesting about that passage is the context. Uh, In Matthew 4, Jesus is going into the wilderness. Now, we have been studying um, the concept of manna. And if you are familiar with manna, you know that in the Old Testament, when the people of Egypt, the people of Israel, rather, were coming out of 400 years of slavery, and they were on their way to the promised land, it should have taken them only weeks or a couple of months to make their way up to that promised land to Abraham, but because of the unbelief of 10 of the 12 spies, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years while the older generation died out. Everyone under 20 would enter into the promised land. Everyone over 20 would die in the wilderness. Uh, You had two million men, women, and children, and they were in the wilderness, deep in the wilderness, away from the cities, away from the supply lines, and the observation has been, how do you feed two million people, men, women, and kids, every day for 40 years when all supply lines are cut off? And the answer is that God supernaturally gave manna every morning they would come out and there would be a dew-like substance that would evaporate and then they would go and gather the manna. It was, had the, uh, it was like a coriander seed, wafer-like, tasted like honey. This is all in Exodus 16. It could be baked, broiled, ground, all kinds of things. And God sustained them with the manna. Uh, for 40 years. It's interesting that in Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word out of the mouth of God, he was in the wilderness. We made the statement a couple of weeks ago that those who follow Christ will sometimes find themselves in a wilderness because there are lessons to be learned in a wilderness that are learned nowhere else. So Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, and who does he say it to? He says it to the enemy who is tempting him. Um, you might turn with me to Matthew 4, 4. Because when Jesus gives that statement to the temptation of Satan, um, and Jesus was in this wilderness, not for 40 years, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, He was without physical food for 40 days. Uh, Chapter 4 of Matthew, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So I would say this. if, if, If Jesus was in the wilderness for a while, don't be surprised as a follower of Christ if you find yourself in an occasional wilderness. Deep things happen in a wilderness. We don't want to be in the wilderness, but God seems to do deep work in the wilderness in the lives of his people. 
After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, notice how he answers every temptation. He answers temptation with Scripture. Um, Hebrews says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to divide between uh, bone and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The scripture is living. It is active. Uh, The scripture is our uh, only offensive weapon. Ephesians 6, that section beginning with verse 10. This pulpit here, if you can see it, what you have is this beautiful wood carving. You have a sword and it is right in the crease of a book. Take the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6 says, which is the Word of God. This Bible is a sword. It is our only offensive weapon. So here you find Jesus being tempted, and what does he do? He uses his only offensive weapon. He uses the Word of God. Uh, if the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, verse 3, command that these stones become bread. He answered and said, It is written. Really? It's written? Mm-hmm. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All right, the question is, when you do Bible study and you have a question, you go, It's written. Well, where is it written? Well, you look in a little margin there. All those little notes. There'll be one that'll say four, probably in bold print. That corresponds to verse four. And there'll be a little, it'll tell you where it's written in. And what do you find? Well, it's written in Deuteronomy 8. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 8. Yeah, verse three. So Jesus here is fighting temptation. How is he fighting temptation? By answering it with the word of God. Uh, In Daniel 8, we'll start in verse one. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply to go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God, now watch this, has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. So the verse that that Jesus quotes is in the context of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years between Egypt and the promised land, which was the period of time where they were fed what? Manna. Okay. You should remember all the way, I'm in verse 2, which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now watch this. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So see, Matthew 4.4 has a context. Man shall not live by bread alone. Uh, The the manna was to teach them a particular lesson. Uh, We are born physically alive but spiritually 
dead. Um, babies are cute, but babies are sinners. You should understand that. Babies, uh, isn't it interesting how they, and every kid is different. You're going to get a compliant kid. And if you get a compliant kid first, you think you're the greatest father on the face of the earth. Because that little kid does exactly what you say. Never, never, never bats an eyelid, never rebels. He just, is, he just does it. And you're getting ready to write your first book at 19 as a young father because you're such a brilliant father with this compliant kid. And then you get your second child who is the child from hell. <laughs> what Dobson called the strong-willed child. And they will spit in your eye. They're cute. Huh. Now what's funny is that compliant kid, his heart is in the same shape as the strong-willed kid. It's just that he kind of handles it differently and he may be easy for a number of years, but one day he's going to get sick and tired of being compliant. He's going to do it his way, and he doesn't care. And you're going to think, what happened to him? Well, his heart came out. You see? We're born physically alive, spiritually dead. At some point, we uh, must come to Christ to have our sins forgiven. And as Christ pulls us to himself, uh, Old things are passed away. All things become new. When we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, we believe he's the Son of God. We confess him with our mouth. We shall be saved. Kind of paraphrasing Romans 10 there and tying in Ephesians 2. All right? So here's the deal. What happens after we come to know Christ, <clears throat> we used to be physically alive, spiritually dead. When you come to know Christ, you're now physically alive and spiritually alive. So just as you have to be physically fed, now you must be spiritually fed. It's very important. Jesus could get along in the wilderness without physical food, but he could not get along without spiritual food. This is what the enemy attempts to do. The enemy attempts to con us by making us think that we know enough to get by without a daily feeding of the Word of God. And you can't do it. It's virtually impossible. Uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks, who was an elder in this church for many years, a uh, great communicator now with the Lord, uh, he did a survey many years ago. Uh, I remember hearing about it in class. I called him years later, uh, quoted it in... Um, was it Finishing Strong, the book I did, with his permission? He surveyed 246 pastors, missionaries, youth workers, guys committed to Christ. Uh, he, uh, he interviewed 246 of these pastors. Why 246? What do they have in common? Um, well, they had all fallen into sexual immorality as they were in ministry. And he interviewed each one of them and found some traits in their lives, the first trait that he found in each of their lives was that they had no personal time in the Word of God. Now, they used to. They used to. 
But as the years went by, what happened? They thought they could get by without feeding daily on the Word of God. And they couldn't. These guys were all doctrinally sound. They weren't heretics. Uh, I went to seminary with a few of these guys. Uh, they, in their early years, they'd die for Christ. They would, they would do anything for Christ. They never intended for that to happen. But they got ambushed by the enemy. And what happened was they, uh, they, they began to think that they could skim on the nourishment of their spiritual life. But Jesus, note what he said in Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Spiritually, you just can't have breakfast and lunch and dinner uh, at Denny's or wherever you eat. You've got to be feeding on the word of God or you're in trouble. You will become malnourished. You will become weak. You will become sickly. You cannot fight the good fight. You cannot stand firm. You can't even stand up because you're so malnourished. And this happens to men who revere the Bible, but Satan gets us kind of duped where we get so busy that we just don't um, read the Bible. I heard a great phrase this week from Os Guinness. He talked about, um, he talked about the weapons of mass distraction. That's brilliant. Weapons of mass distraction. Um, I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, the Lord is giving directions on, in regard to the king that the people are going to want to have. And this indeed happened. Uh, the king will be responsible for the people. Uh, he's responsible for the nation, for the well-being of the nation. And he is responsible for leading the people of God in the right path of God. That's his responsibility as a king. Uh, we've heard it said that uh, every husband, every father um, oversees a small civilization. If you have a family, that's a small civilization. You got your wife, you got your kids, maybe you're old enough, you have grandkids. That's your little civilization. That's, that's your little nation. And so, if you will, it used to be said before days of political correctness that a man is king of his castle. Well, you're not supposed to say that anymore. That didn't go over real big. But, um, but uh, I, I mean, it's, it's a good concept because a king was responsible to God for his people. A father is responsible to God for his kids. A husband is responsible to God for his wife. It's all right there in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, you see. Yeah, you have responsibility uh, for your family. So in a sense... You're, uh, you're king of your family, if you will. Uh, that doesn't mean king as in terms of an uh, authoritarian king. Uh, you lead them and love them uh, under the authority of the king of kings, who is the greatest king, whoever is, will be, or will to come. You see? So in Deuteronomy 17, 
You say, now, what does this have to do with manna? It has all kinds of things to do with manna because what we're going to see is that God is going to make some things very clear to the king about the requirements for a king and the daily responsibilities of a king. And watch this. One of the daily responsibilities of the king is to feed on the word of God because the word of God is our daily manna. Sure, in the wilderness, the manna would show up, but they had to go and gather it. You know, it's amazing. We live in a country where we have unbelievable access to the Word of God. There are some countries where they don't have Bibles, where Bibles are smuggled in. Uh, it, is a, it is a huge event for someone to hear that there is a Bible in a city, and they will trek for miles, hundreds of miles, to actually go see a Bible, let alone read a Bible. You see? But we've got Bibles everywhere. Some of you guys, you got Bibles, well, my phone's in my car. You got a Bible in your phone. You got a Bible in your iPad. Uh, most of you guys have more than one Bible at home. You've got several Bibles on your shelf. You see? Now, here's the thing, and we were talking about this last week, is that that Bible is our manna. Man shall not live by red alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We're in Deuteronomy 17. We haven't started reading it yet. I will do that shortly. But I will take you over to Deuteronomy 32 once again, since we're only a hop, skip, and a jump away from Deuteronomy 32. And if you look at verse 45, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, watch this, it is your life. It's your life. Can, how many of you guys, I'm just curious, how many of you guys had breakfast this morning? Raise your hands, unashamedly. How many of you had two breakfasts? You went twice through the drive through at McDonald's. Some of you did. You don't need to admit it. That's all right. They got you on film. They know you were there. Everything's on camera. Anyway. Um, and then how many of you guys had lunch? Anybody have lunch? Yeah, good. Great. Anybody have dinner tonight? Okay, so a lot of you guys, most of you guys in here have had three meals. Some of you just two, and you'll go home and binge on Bluebell later. It'll be fun. What a way to go to sleep. But uh, so you had breakfast, right? Made sure you had breakfast. Why did you eat breakfast? Well, gosh, you got up and you were hungry and you got work to do, so you fed yourself. Because you got to have a certain amount of energy, you got to get the blood sugar level at a certain point, all this, you got to function. And then, you know, it's been so many hours and you got a little drop. Yeah, you need a little protein. So you grab some lunch. Okay, and then you go through the afternoon about four o'clock, you know, you have that little drop, and what are we having for dinner? And see, see, you can't function without food. Now, what we forget is that spiritually speaking, we can't function without the Word of God. And here is where the enemy cons us. He cons us into thinking that I can get by without the Word of God. But I actually can't. I'll show it to you out of Deuteronomy 17. Uh, let's jump in at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. So it had to be one of their own. Um, 
historically, when God would judge the nation, judgment would come upon the nation, God would send them a king who was not born in their own land. That was a judgment upon them uh, in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, there are other ones that ruled and reigned over them, but a foreigner was not to reign over them. That was a judgment and not a blessing. He goes on and says this, he shall not multiply horses for himself. Why not? Because God didn't want them, horses pull chariots. That was the modern, latest uh, technological weapon for battle. All the other nations had them, but God didn't want them trusting in chariots. God wanted them trusting in him so they were not to multiply horses so that they wouldn't be tempted to multiply chariots. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself. All the other kings, well, we want to have a king like all the other nations. Well, all those other kings have all kinds of wives, because what they do, they make treaties and alliances. They'll marry this king's daughter, and then their friends, because she wants to go there for Thanksgiving, and you don't want to be at war and all this stuff, and it kind of works out, and it's a political thing. So they had more than one wife, okay? And God says, but not, not the king of Israel. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else, why, why not? Or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now watch this, this is wild. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. That he may learn. Why would he read it all the days of his life? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. Watch this. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Because if his heart is lifted up above his countrymen, he thinks that it's all about him. He's, he thinks they are there to serve me instead of me serving them. But the Son of Man did not come to be served. The Son of Man came to serve. That's a heart issue. When a man gets controlling, when a man thinks he's the center, when you think it's all about you, you've got heart trouble, as they used to say in the 50s. I can remember my grandpa went to the doctor, and I can remember hearing that he's got heart trouble. We don't use that phrase a lot. But it means you've got calcium or cholesterol, whatever, you've got blockage. That's heart trouble. Well, there's a spiritual heart. What does this say? He's to read the Word of God all the day of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing, carefully observing. This isn't a five-minute fly-through-it thing. By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up, because Christianity is always about the heart. Always. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the what? At the heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And you shall love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, with all your heart. Okay? It's important to be in the Word to keep your heart balanced that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. So this is wild. 
So they didn't have uh, Gutenberg yet, and they didn't have a printing press, and they didn't have iPhones. So how did the king get his Bible? And he, they didn't have the completed word of God because they were they were in history. But the portion that was available to them, he sat down, took his own pen, and wrote his own copy of the Word of God in his own hand, had it bound in leather, put it on a shelf, and would pull it down on Christmas Eve and read the Christmas story. It's <laughs> not how it worked. He wrote it, copied it in his own hand, and then he was to read it. Every day, because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, it is not an idle word for you. It is your, it is your life. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable. You guys spend a lot of time today trying to make a profit. Because you got families and you got bills and you got tuition and you got taxes and so you got to make some profit, right? Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Some would disagree with that, but the Bible wouldn't. Nothing wrong with making a profit by hard work, honest work. Um, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching. It's profitable for what? For teaching, because I need to be taught. For reproof, because sometimes I get out of whack. I start to take a wrong step, and I need to be reproved. I need to be admonished. The scripture admonishes me. And if someone is teachable, that's to your profit. Is it not? If you're not teachable, you're finished. But if you're a teachable man, gosh, Well, you've got a great future ahead of you. Why? Because you're willing to learn the lessons. So all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof. Well, he doesn't just reprove me, then he corrects me. For teaching, reproof, correction, gets me where I need to be. Training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate or literally completely furnished for every Good work. Um, God has a work for you to do. He has a work for me to do. According to Ephesians 2.10, you can't die until you do your work. Uh, how are you nurtured to do your work? By the word of God. By the word of God. So the king of Israel was to write his own copy and to read it, what? All the days of his life. In other words, it was his manna. He had to feed his soul on manna. He had to nurture his soul just as he had to feed his physical body. And it's just not a matter of reading the word. It's a matter of digesting the word. And we made the point last week that meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. Flip over to Joshua 1. Uh, when Joshua, see in Deuteronomy, Moses is leading the nation of Israel. He's the one that let them out. But then you've got a leadership transition. Moses dies after 120 years on the earth. It's handed over to Joshua. Watch what's said to Joshua. 
uh, Joshua 1.5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Watch this. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be, here it is again, careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then will you, you will have success. Same principle, same concept. Turn with me to 1 Kings 18.21. See, why are we going over there? Well, because the people and the kings got away from the Lord. Uh, most of the kings, you start studying the kings of Israel, and the vast majority of kings were evil kings and did not follow the Lord. They knew the truth. They'd been given the scripture but they ignored it. And they went after false gods and they weren't careful and they took the nation into a downward spiral. Uh, when you get to 1 Kings 18, things are so bad, the nation uh, has, has split. You've got a horrific king by the name of Ahab. Um, Elijah has confronted Ahab uh, when they actually meet in verse 17 of 1 Kings 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Oftentimes, when things fall apart in a nation, those who follow the Lord are viewed as the troublemakers. Just count on that and know it. So here's Ahab, absolutely a godless, narcissistic, idol-worshipping, sexually deviant king, married to a godless woman named Jezebel, taking the nation down, a moral sewer. He sees the man of God and calls him a troubler of Israel. Elijah said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have because you've forsaken the commandments. Here we go again. You've forsaken the commandments that you were supposed to be careful to follow with your heart. He just chucked them. You've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now, this gets interesting. Now, send them and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. All these false prophets fed at the, at the, uh, in the palace. He fed them. He paid them. They had pensions. They had a car. They had a driver, a chariot driver, whatever they had. He took care of them. And uh, Elijah says, hey, let's, let's get this worked out. So what do they do? They bring all the prophets. They go to Mount Carmel. And there's going to be, let's figure out who's God. Is it, is it God, Yahweh, or is it Baal? 
and they're going to have, anyway, uh, 20. Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Watch this. Elijah came near to all the people and said, now watch this, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. I find this fascinating. To the people of God, he says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? Flip over with me to Psalm 1. We were there last week. We'll go back. It's been seven days. Psalm 1, opening psalm, kind of sets the pace for all the other psalms, the other 149 psalms. Uh, The righteous and the wicked are contrasted. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, Whoever the man is, he's listening to somebody. Whoever the man is, someone is influencing him, someone is counseling him, someone is leading him, someone is feeding him information by which he makes his decisions. Now watch this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in Jesus, who is the bread of life, John 6, 35, you see. Uh, So I was out running some errands Monday night. I get in the car, I'm driving home. I turn on the radio, it's set on KCBI, and uh, John MacArthur's coming on with a new series. I'm not usually in the car, and it was a series, uh, he's only a pastor in California, but they have a college called the Master's College. I've had the privilege of speaking there. And uh, he was doing a series for the students. And it was basically about, uh, and I don't have the title exactly right, but godly living in an evil age. And before they actually played the, the message that he gave to the students, the announcer was interviewing him. He said, so why, John, are you doing this? Why are you doing this series? Why did you bring this up to the students? And I, 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 I was in the car. Uh, so I got a piece of paper and I started writing in the car as I'm driving 60 miles an hour. You know I didn't do that. I thought I'd get your attention. But. So I'm doing this from memory. But here's what he said. Here's why I did this. He said, most of our students are from Christian homes. Many of them in Christian, uh, were educated in Christian schools. Um, have a Christian heritage strong in their family. Most of our students would have that uh, demographic makeup. Uh, but he said, Christian young people are drowning. They're drowning. And then he went on basically to say, they're drowning in the onslaught of modern technology and media and the messages which come without ceasing. These are Christian kids, Christian foundations, and they're drowning between what? Two opinions. Two opinions. There are always two opinions. Jesus, uh, the Bible says there is a way, and if the Bible says it, Jesus says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. Jesus did say broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Because, you see, there are two opinions, there are two worldviews. Psalm 1 says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, 
who doesn't stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. In terms of education, it's controlled by the wicked, by the sinners, and by the scoffers. Is it not? Yes, it is. There is no God. Where did life come from? Well, don't even mention God. You'll, you, you'll never get tenure if you're a professor. You know it, and I know it. Politically, it's verse 1, with exceptions. We have some Daniels standing up, and we thank God for them. They're outnumbered, but God always has his men. Elijah thought he was only the only one. The Lord said there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But know this. Where we are in our country, the opinion that is drowning not only Christian young people, but all of us, is the one of the wicked, the path of sinners, and the seed of scoffers. It's technology, it's media, it's education, it's everything. Um, and then I came across uh, someone who interviewed Josh McDowell this week, and McDowell was talking about we're living in a time where cultural changes are creating the perfect storm against the church. Now, why am I going to read this to you? Because I hope it'll be an impetus for you personally to make sure that you create a habit in your own life of getting into the Word of God on a daily basis. Because what I want to try and prove to you is um, we're kidding ourselves with what we're up against. We are kidding ourselves if we think we can function as leaders of our home and godly men and give an example and give wisdom to our kids without the Word of God. I don't, again, once again, it doesn't matter if you revere the Word of God, doesn't matter if your grandpa on both sides was a, were, were preachers, doesn't matter. This is you and the Lord in your heart, in my heart. Uh, McDowell says that there is an epistemog epistemological shift what the heck does that mean? I don't know. Let's just keep reading. We'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, epistemology has to do with what you know and how you know it. How do you know something is true? Okay? Okay, that's what it is. He says, we've gone from being God-centered to self-centered. So what we think is true is not starting with God. It starts with us. We've gone from being God-centered to self-centered, from being objective to being subjective. Oh, the Lord told me. Well, how do you know he told you? That's subjective. Unless it fits the word of God, the objective word of God, you don't know the Lord told you. I'm not saying God doesn't lead us. He does lead us, but you test the spirits to see if they be of God. You don't live subjectively, you live objectively. The Christians, the believers at Berea were more noble than the Christians at Thessalonica because they examined the scriptures to see if these things were true. They lived objectively. Right? Okay. We've gone from being objective to being subjective and from being internal to external. He argues that the truth that the church upholds is merely viewed by, as personal opinion by some people, especially young individuals, due to the idea that most think that God is dead. Uh, he goes on and says, and this ties in with what MacArthur was saying about them drowning in the modern technology and media. 
he said, uh, McDowell says that the internet's exploding information plays a major factor in challenging the way young people view coach, culture, the church, and their moral views. According to his research, millions of youths take in about 34 gigabytes of internet data each day, which is equivalent to the amount of lyrics found in uh, over 8,000 songs. Every pastor, youth pastor, and every parent is in competition with the internet and the information it is spreading, said McDowell. Most young people don't get their news from the normal sources. They get it from bloggers. There are about 181 million bloggers vying for the attention of your children. Most of those bloggers would fit Psalm 1, verse 1. They are not founded on the Word of God. See, there are two opinions. He says, uh, uh, the unlimited amount of online information that people have access to has caused an increase in skepticism. That will only continue to become more pervasive, says McDowell. Why? They're being polled. There are two opinions, and the overwhelming opinion that they are listening to is the one that is anti the Word of God. Okay. He's, McDowell says, if you don't believe me, go around and talk to young people in colleges and in junior high. Go and make the truth statements, and you'll hear them say, well, how do you know that's true? There's so much out there, says McDowell. For every kid, even Christians, the age of the Internet is wearing down their convictions because they think tomorrow they'll find out something else. He continued, 15 to 20 years ago, the questions that you used to hear at universities about faith, Jesus, and the Bible, about skepticisms, questioning what you believe in, questions that you used to hear uh, in the last two years of college are now being asked by 10 and 11-year-olds. It's all coming right down through Facebook. McDowell went on and said, young people are increasingly becoming addicted to pornography, adding that it is the greatest threat to the body of Christ in 2,000 years. It is destroying pastors, youth pastors, and more Christians than anything by far in history. The number one demographic is 12 to 25-year-olds. There's no difference in and out of the church. He added that 50% of fundamental evangelical pastors watch porn, while 80% of youth pastors have a problem with porn as well. McDowell pointed out that porn provides only a momentary satisfaction, and porn addicts often seek other opportunities to satisfy their sexual desires. He goes on and advises parents not to shelter their children from what's out there, but rather to prepare them for the first time they will inevitably encounter information overload on the internet and porn. You can't shelter them from it, so start preparing them for the first time they see it. You need to do this early with your sons and your grandsons and even your daughters. You, you, we just got to have conversations that are unthinkable. Because we live in a culture that is attempting to rob children of their innocence early. So you don't skirt the issue and you don't knock it. It's there. It's real. They're going to see this stuff. So you make a preemptive strike and you talk to them about it first. And let them know it's out there. And when it happens, you can come to me and ask me a question. And I will answer any question that you have. And I will tell you the truth. I will tell you. And this is something God has created that is good and wonderful. It comes from the Lord. But people have taken it and they've twisted it. You just, you just know it's coming. And good coaches prepare their players for situations before the player ever encounters a situation. That's what fathers and grandpas do. 
So then I come across John Piper's article, Pornography, the New Narcotic. And I'm thinking, how do I cover this stuff tonight? Let me just give you something here. Oh, oh by the way, you say, Farrar, why are you doing all this? Because uh, the king of Israel was supposed to read the word of God every day. Well, yeah, oh, I'm sure that's important. I'm going to tell you something. It's important. Why? Because it's just not young people that are drowning. It's the rest of us. We are getting hammered. We're getting deluged. We're getting tsunami every time we turn around with the wrong opinion and the wrong view of life. This is spiritual stuff. He quotes a book by Morgan Bennett called The New Narcotic. Neurological research has revealed that the effect of internet pornography on the human brain is just as potent, if not more so, than addictive chemical substances such as cocaine or heroin. Then he goes on and he shows it's actually worse. I'm not going to take the time to read it. Uh, You can um, look it up. Just put in John Piper, the new narcotic. It'll come up. You got part one, and you read part one, and it'll kind of just overwhelm you with the devastation. What it does to the brain is, is really more damaging than cocaine or heroin. But then read part two. And part two is um, hijacking back your brain from porn. Read that. Because you'll talk about the power of the Word of God. I, I, I met a guy at Peninsula Bible Church. I just graduated from college, was on my way to seminary. Brilliant guy. He'd, uh, brilliant. Uh, he'd gone to Harvard, graduated with honors, had gone on to Oxford. Uh, great athlete, rode in the Oxford crew, but had, uh, in the late 60s, gotten into the whole drug culture and, and dropped so much acid. Uh, he was coming to Stanford to teach and work on a PhD, but in the interim, his mind was so destroyed by LSD that he had trouble putting a, uh, one rational thought together with another. And he came to know the Lord. And I remember him telling me, he said, you know, Steve, the first time someone handed me a book by C.S. Lewis, the Christian apologist, I read it, and I could feel my mind coming back together because the logic was so clear. God began to heal my mind, and when I would read Scripture, God would heal my mind. God can do that from pornography. You see? How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to thy word? But see, they're coming after your kids, and they're coming after your grandkids. You just need to know. I, I'm sorry to lay this on you guys. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that it's there, but I'm not sorry to tell you about it because we have got to be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if he can't get you, he's coming after your kids. And he's coming after your grandkids. So what, what is this a little bit overwhelming to you? It was, I, I got so overwhelmed this afternoon, I had to get up from my desk, and I had to go take a walk and walk around and talk out loud again. <laughs> Even if somebody saw me. They would think I was on the cell phone. I just had to go and walk around and just talk out loud. I mean, 
dear God, this is overwhelming. This is just overwhelming. The wickedness, the evil, the pervasiveness, it's everywhere. If you don't intervene, if you don't, if you don't do a work in the lives of these kids, if you don't protect them, if you don't give me wisdom, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, guys, this is no time as a leader in your home. This Can I say this to you? This is no time to be spiritually malnourished. Because we're dealing, and you say, well, Steve, my life is so busy. I know. Gosh, uh, we've all got busy lives. We're going 24-7. But what did Oskinis call it? He called them weapons of mass distraction. You cannot get distracted. There are certain things that you must do, and there are certain things you do do. And you make it a part of your life. You build it into your life. And then David Murray has got 18 obstacles to personal devotions in the digital age. He's an excellent theologian. Australian research found that if pastors could do only one thing to help people at all levels of spiritual maturity grow in their relationship with Christ, they would inspire, encourage, and equip their people to read the, anybody know? Bible. Specifically to reflect on Scripture for many in their lives. The Center for Bible Engagement discovered that the number one thing you can do for yourself spiritually is to read the Bible four times a week or more. Read it this frequently, and your life looks completely different to those who don't read the Bible or read it less than that. Um, uh, he, he, he gave 20... This is kind of fascinating because life has changed with technology. Here are 18 obstacles to finding time to spend time in the Scriptures on a daily basis. And I'm going to just run through them real quick. Number one, he says, this is hard because we've lost our boundaries. Working life is no longer limited to one place and certain hours. We're always expected to be on call. 75% of 25-year-olds to 30-year-olds sleep with their phones. A lot of 25-year-old males are looking to sleep with women. But a lot of them are already sleeping with their phones. Why? Because you always got to be on call. You always got to be available if you're going to have job security. You're always on call even on vacation. So there are no boundaries at work. Loss of concentration because of technology. Test of office workers revealed that they check email 30 to 40 times an hour. One in four people check their smartphone every 30 minutes. I'm driving by a school the other day. Uh, all the cars are lined up to pick up the kids. Uh, some moms have come down in strollers and are waiting on the sidewalk. And there are maybe 20 moms on the sidewalk. I'm driving by in the school zone going real slow. And I just looked over at the moms. Every single mom was doing this. Nobody was, well, I take it back. I saw two women talking. There must have been 20 women. Normally, 20 women standing around. 20 women are talking, but technology has changed that. <laughs> Loss of reading ability. Computer scrolling has resulted in more scanning and speed reading. That's the exact opposite of meditating on a scripture. Loss of meditation. Deep and prolonged thought on anything is rare because you just Google it. Well, I wonder what that means. Google it. Loss of memory. Why do you have loss of memory? 
Well, we don't need to memorize anything because if you just know one or two words, you can Google it and get it. Which leads to loss of problem, problem solving, loss of social connection, loss of sleep because of late night technology, loss of quiet, beeps, buzzes, pings. Yeah, have it on silent. My gosh, rattles you to the bone. Loss of friendships. Online friendships are more common than normal friendships. Loss of family time. Loss of privacy. Loss of time. Why? So much time is being wasted with meaningless stuff. Loss of purity. Why? Internet. You know why. Loss of patience. We want instant results because we're used to it. Loss of wisdom. Because we read more bloggers than we do God's Word. Loss of humility. We think we have access to everything, even if we don't know it. This is why kids are skeptics. Loss of routine. Uh, regularity and rhythm are rare in people's lives because of the unpredictable nature and hours of jobs nowadays. So what do you got to do? You got to fight the culture. Um, okay. I want to do this one more time. I, I want to hit this one more time because I just don't want to talk about the problem. I want to give you a step. I carry this calendar with me. Uh, there are a bunch of different calendars for reading through the scriptures. I would suggest that you find one. If you email, email me, I'll shoot you the one I use. It's called McChain's Calendar for Daily Readings. And uh, here's my calendar. And I mark it each year, I'm, each day, I mark it. You, um, you read four chapters, and it takes you through the Word of God in a year. You go, what if I only do it four times a week? Well, then you'll get through the Word of God in about a year and a half. That's great. You see? And you're reading in four different sections so you don't get hung up in Leviticus with the, with the offerings and fall asleep. You're also reading over in John, you know, and in Acts. And I've used this for years and years and years. You can get a one-year Bible. Uh, I don't have my phone, but on my phone, see, I have at home, I use the New American Standard Version. I also use the ESV Study Bible. That's a Bible about this thick. I got the ESV Study Bible on an app on my iPhone. If you download it, get the one that says ESV Bible Crossway. They're the publishers. And what I can do, I can be in an airport, or I can be waiting in a doctor's office, and I'm working on a text. I had to go to the doctor, so I just keep working on the text. I pull out my iPhone, go to my ESV study Bible, and I can actually do, if you want to, they got Greek interlinear, an inter, Greek interlinear on there, if you even want a Greek word study. But if you don't, that's fine. They got the ESV study Bible notes, which are so balanced and so well done. You're reading something, you go, now what did Jesus mean by that in John 4, in Matthew 4, 4? Well, if you look up the ESV Study Bible right there on your phone, it'll refer you to Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. You see? It'll give you the context. In your phone. In your phone. 
The greatest one-volume Bible commentary I think ever done is the one that Matthew Henry did in the 1700s. I got it at home. It's that thick. I also got it on my phone. And all if I'm reading a passage, and I think, I wonder what old Matthew Henry had to say about that. I just browse to Jeremiah chapter 29. There's Matthew Henry. Never could he conceive he would be on a phone. He didn't even know what a phone was. You see? I'm just saying, guys, there are tools. Can I say this again to you? If you work out, don't you have a place to work out? Why don't you have a place to work out spiritually? Kitchen table? Um, your desk at work? Shut the door? I don't know. Find a place. Here's the other thing. Find a time. Set it. Whatever's good for you, God will be there. Get your Bible. Read your verses. If something hits you, circle it. What's that other verse there next to it, that cross? What's that say? Look that up. Oh, wow, that's wild. Write that on the margin. You can write in your Bible. You see? This is how, and you know what you're doing? You're fighting the world system. And you're putting the word of God in your heart. And you're just walking through life, and all of a sudden you're at the the grocery store and some chick comes walking in and she's got the short shorts and the low top and the, uh, you know, hey, hey, hey. And, and you're just picking up a few items for your wife. This happened to me a few years ago. Get asparagus and get peaches and I'm getting the peaches and here comes this girl in the low top, short shorts, and she had some peaches. And, you know, you're doing this. And then she's right across. I mean, I'm right here, and she's right there in the, uh, in, the, in the asparagus. I mean, she's not four feet away from me, leaning over, getting asparagus. And what am I trying to do? I'm trying to look at the peaches. <laughs> trying to feel them, hoping they're written in Braille, because I sure as heck try not to look. And then I get my peaches. I turn around, I walk up, and here comes her twin sister. True story. How do you fight that? As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. That's in the Bible. That's in Proverbs. And see, maybe that was in my reading that morning. And the Lord knows what I'm going to face, and so something I read is in my heart, and when I'm tempted to step, what does Scripture do? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching reproof. Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check her out. But I'm reproved because, no, no, I, I, sh- I uh, no. That's an ox going to the slaughter, Proverbs says, same context. No. 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 Well, she really looks good. Yeah, a lot of things look good. Yeah. But you take that step, you start going on that path, and there's nothing, you're just, you're just, you're just eviscerating your own life. There's a lot more to life than that. You see? But the Word of God checks me. The Word of God corrects me. The Word of God gives me perspective. There's some chick at work, and she's there, you know, 
get to know her, man, it'd be great to get to know her, but you're married. Mm. Stop and think about what would happen if you took that thing and got involved with her. You would ruin your life. What would you do to your kids? What would you do? The damage, and you think she's going to make you happy? I bet you she's already been married, and some guy left her already. You don't find your joy and your satisfaction in someone. They can't meet your needs. See, this, we're not thinking straight. It's the wrong thinking. Okay. Well, I was doing okay for a while. <laughs> and now I'm at 49 seconds. But I want to show you something. I started with Kings, and I want to finish with Kings. Real quick. Go with me, if you would, to 1 Kings 11. I want to show you the importance of the Word of God in your life. And listen, guys, listen. I could say I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but I'm going to be honest with you. I'm trying to make you feel a little guilty. Because when I go see the doctor, he makes me feel guilty every stinking time I go in there. And it didn't bother him a whit to make me feel guilty. Okay? Yeah. You know what he's doing? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You need to do this, and you need to do this. And I know he's right. Right? I just need to be man enough to listen and to do what he says. So what I'm saying to you, I'm not, and listen, don't try to, oh, seven days, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn Greek and Hebrew. Don't, okay, hold on. Don't, don't go off with, you know, don't go nuts here. Just get a, get a Bible, good translation. Maybe download one of those apps, ESV. By the way, you can sign up for that McChain study. Yeah, they'll, they'll email it to you every morning. It'll be on your phone when you get up. You see? Is that not wild? And you're eating your Wheaties? Just eat your Wheaties and then chew on the Word of God. You've got double digestion going. It's really a wild concept. You see, you're crunching your Wheaties and you're crunching the Word of God. You're building your heart, both heart. Okay. First, uh, where am I going? First Kings 11. Let me show you something. So Solomon, uh, if anybody had a great start, it was Solomon. David prepared everything for him to build the temple. God appeared to Solomon twice. So Solomon wrote a copy of the Word of God. Okay? Watch this. First Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. What? What did it say about the king of Israel and, and wives? We read it once, and you already know what it says. One wife. You're to be a one-woman kind of man. Did he know that? Yeah. Did he do it? No. In fact, as a young man, he willfully went against it and got this daughter of Pharaoh, then he picks up another one, then he picks up another one. Okay, he knew it. Verse 3, he had 700 wives. You can't get enough Viagra in bulk to handle that. Costco doesn't carry that much. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Watch this. His wives turned away his heart. 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other what? Gods, because they were of another opinion. That's why. He knew it, and he went there anyway. He may have started with the Word of God, but somewhere early, he dropped off. He didn't think he needed the daily manna. He wound up, he built the great temple for God, but he wound up, in verse 7, building temple for the idols on the hills around Jerusalem. For idols. He built a temple for Moloch, who was the fire god. They would throw their babies into the fire and they would be immolated to death. He built a temple to that god. Solomon did. You telling me that the daily reading of the word of God and the application of it to your life is not important? It's critical. Then go to the next chapter. He has a son named Rehoboam. Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam comes to the throne. The, uh, the, the other tribes come. They make a request that your father made things hard on us. Would you give us a little bit of a break? I won't go over all this. He said, let me ponder it for three days. Verse 5, then come back to me. He consulted with the elders, verse 6, who had served his father, Solomon, while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer this people? And they said, this would be a good thing. Show them grace. Show them mercy. It would be a good way to start your kingdom. It'll fortify the kingdom. It'll encourage their heart. Verse 8, he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him, and he went to college with them, and they were in the frat house together. The young stupid guys, he listened to them who were in the seat of scoffers and wicked and sinners. He listened to them. You see, Solomon listened to the opinion of compromise. His son listened to the opinion of the young and godless. And as a result, when they came back three days later, Oh, by the way, the young men basically said, um, you need to be tough. Verse 10, the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. You can figure out what they're saying. Something stupid and adolescent like some 12-year-old would say. Hey, listen, I'm tough. My little finger's bigger than my dad's sexual organ. That's exactly what that is. He listened to the nonsense because he listened to the wrong people. You're listening to somebody. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's a section that Solomon wrote called wisdom literature. He should have taken his own advice. When my son Josh was little, he came to me one night. He goes, hey, Daddy, he said, Solomon. And I said, yeah. He said, I got a question. Wasn't he the wisest man? I go, yeah. He said, didn't he get all messed up? And I said, yep. He said, how can the wisest man in the world get all messed up? And I, you know, what do you say? This just kind of popped in my head. I take it from the Lord. I needed, that was manna for me that night. It was a well-timed help. I said, Josh, there's a difference between wisdom and obedience. Wisdom means he had great insight into the truth. 
But wisdom doesn't guarantee that you obey the truth. He didn't obey what he knew to be true. Uh, the last one is Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the head of the people that came to Rehoboam and said, make it easier for us. Well, when they turned the people down, Jeroboam was made king. This was part of God's plan, according to verse 15. And the ten northern tribes split off from Judah. Okay. And then what happened is, so all the northern tribes are up there, and Jeroboam's their king. They got a new king. Oh, by the way, so Rehoboam, it took 80 years for David and Solomon to pull the nation and keep it together for 80 years. In 72 hours, Rehoboam split it because he listened to the wrong opinion and not the word of God. Do you think Rehoboam was reading the word of God on a daily basis? I don't think so. So then Jeroboam, verse 25, built Shechem in the hill country. So Jeroboam goes north. And then, I'll just summarize this. And then three times a year, the men of Israel were to go to Jerusalem for the feast. And Jeroboam thought, wait a minute. If they go down there to the feast, they're going to be influenced by Rehoboam, and they're one going to serve him, and I won't be king anymore, and I won't have all this power. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up my own temples in Dan and in Bethel, and he built two golden calves. Gee, where did he get that? Not from, you think he was reading the Word of God every morning? No, he sets up two golden calves, and he says, you don't have to go down there, although God said they were supposed to go. All what you can do is just go over here to Dan, or you can go to Bethel and worship the golden calves. And uh, hmm. look at verse 33. He went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, even the month which he had devised in his own heart. He set up a counterfeit religious system and led the whole nation away from God. Why? Because he listened to the opinion of his own thinking, not based in the word of God. So what I'm saying to you guys is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I am afraid of myself. I didn't used to be, but I am now. I made enough dumb moves. I made enough bad decisions. I got to tell you something. <laughs> I was very frustrated today because I'm pretty much like clockwork with my routine and my schedule and reading my passages. And something happened, and I had to set up an early meeting. It's a long story. And, and I didn't get my passages done. You see? But it's just, I'm so used to it, I just, I just didn't do it. Now, and, and uh, I was driving my car in 635, and a bolt of lightning came down and almost got me. That didn't happen. <laughs> but I felt a little out of kilter. You know why? Because it's normally what I do. I was hungry. I was just a little bit hungry. So I got back after the meeting, and then I jumped back into it. Because i tell you what, it's not an idle word for me. It's my life. Let's pray. Help us with this, Father. Not out of guilt, not out of legalism, but because <laughs> we can't live without it. The enemy cons us into thinking we're strong enough to get by. We're not. We can't live just off a sermon on Sunday, as great as it is. 
We just can't live off going to a Bible study. We need to be spiritual self-feeders and spiritual self-starters. Help us. Not seven days a week. Help us to start with three a week. Just three a week. Begin to get one lap around the high school track before we do a marathon. It'll make a difference in our lives and in our leadership. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.